Black people have thicker skin, and so they don't perceive pain, their pain perception, like they have a higher pain tolerance. And people actually said that they thought that was true or that wow. they clotted faster, those types of things that would affect how they assess a patient and whether or not they think they're in pain. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast where you'll gain the knowledge and confidence you need to erase the unknowns of pregnancy and birth and rock the newborn days like a boss. My name is Liesl Teen. I'm a fellow mom, labor and delivery nurse, and your host. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear a mix of birth stories, expert interviews, and other fun pregnancy and birth-related content. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now let's get into this week's episode. Happy Monday, guys. So this week, this episode of the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast is all about the realities of Black maternal health here in the United States and what we can do to spark change. So this episode I actually did put out last year or a year and a half ago, but I wanted to re-release it today in honor of this week, Black Maternal Health Week. So we at Mommy Laborers have done some feed posts over on Instagram and stories about this topic before to help raise awareness. But I knew with this podcast, I wanted to take more of a deep dive here, you know, here on the podcast and just talk a little bit more about this subject. It's a really heavy topic that can just be really heavy in some ways, but it's really one that needs a lot of light, right? If we're going to spark any kind of change surrounding racism in healthcare and specifically in Black paternal health, I truly believe that awareness is the very first step. So this year, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance is sponsoring the fifth annual Black Maternal Health Week with the goal to raise awareness about the problems, enrich the dialogue surrounding Black maternal health, promote solutions, policies, and research, and increase community involvement all surrounding the disparities in Black maternal health care. And my goal with this episode is just to be a part of that wonderful conversation. So today on this episode, joining me is my dear friend, Jasmine Johnson, an MD, wife, mom of two, and maternal fetal medicine fellow at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels. <laughs> She's also the founder and content creator for the blog and Instagram account at Mrs. Mommy MD, if you want to follow her over there. So today, we discuss statistics surrounding the black maternal mortality rate, why this is such a staggering number, her personal history navigating the healthcare system as a black mom, actionable steps that providers and black mothers can take to address this issue, and so much more. So let's dive right in. So tell me, are you one of an estimated 80% of pregnant women that's hoping to give birth without an epidural? I hate to break it to you, but simply wanting it might not be enough. After the unmedicated birth of my first son, Walter, I knew I had to create an affordable online birth class designed just for moms that wanted to do the same. And that's how Birth It Up, the natural series was born. Learn more about how to make your dream of a natural hospital birth a reality at mommylabornurse.com slash natural birth. You can totally do this and we can help. Hi, Jasmine. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's so exciting to catch up with you. Yeah, I know. So 
obviously nobody listening to this knows that we know each other like in real life. And we kind of used to work with, with each other back in the day. So yes. um, I'm going to start by having you just introduce yourself and tell me all about yourself. And then, yeah, we can, I guess, go into how we kind of know each other too. Absolutely. So my name is Jasmine Johnson. I am a third year maternal fetal medicine fellow. And what that means is I've gotten training in obstetrics and gynecology. So went through medical school and residency, and then decided to subspecialize in just high risk pregnancy. So now I'm entering my last few months of training so that I can be a high risk pregnancy specialist. Yeah, super exciting to not be training anymore. But then also, my social media side talks about that a lot. But also when I was in college, I had an unplanned pregnancy with my son, Nate, who's now 12 years old. I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I was deciding whether, yeah, I know he's like an adult. (laughs) Um, I was deciding whether or not, you know, medical school was still for me after I like had this, you know, Uh obviously a huge change in my life and wasn't sure if being a mom and being a doctor could be something I could do. And it sounds crazy now because we know so many physicians online who are talking about their role as a parent and their role as a physician. But back then in 2008, there weren't any blogs about it. And so I decided to start my own blog called Mrs. Mommy MD. And I chronicled my time through medical school, residency, and now fellowship. And that's kind of the awesome side of being a physician and being able to provide some mentorship that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Because yeah, I remember when I kind of started Mommy Labor Nurse and we chatted like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I looked at all of your stuff and your website. I mean, you're like an OG blogger. <laughs> like you were blogging back when like people were not blogging. <laughs> yes, yes. I always say it was like my free therapy at first. It was just like yeah. a journal. And It's amazing what the community has turned into because it's been such a great way to have connection and like keep up with friendships that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to make. So it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, just on a side note, so Jasmine and I know each other in real life. She did, I guess, how many years were you at WakeMed? How many? Three or four? Yes, we do three of our four years is at WakeMed. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I was a nurse. I think actually the first year that you were a first year resident was my first year there too. I think so. We so. were both there. <laughs> yeah. We were both there. I was back when I was full time on nights before I had Walter. So yeah, we were a resident and I was a nurse and we had plenty of deliveries to each other. Oh my for, gosh. The WakeMed labor and delivery crew is the best. I miss you guys so much. So yes, we miss you you too. All right. Well, Jasmine, we are going to talk about a kind of a heavy topic today, but something that I really, really wanted to do a whole episode on because I think it, it needs a whole episode. And I wanted to bring you on here because I think you just are a super expert in it and just a super expert in everything. And I just love you. So I want you to (laughs) talk about this in depth. So this episode is about the black maternal mortality rate. I think I want you to just start. Can you just tell us like some statistics and why this is an issue and like, just like lay it out flat for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm so glad you're doing this topic because I think that for so long, people have been doing research in this field and now it's starting to get recognition. But these statistics that I'm going to share are the most recent ones. However, this has been an issue in our country. So just to kind of set the stage, you know, we consider the United States a developed nation. So we have a lot of resources that 
should put us kind of on the forefront when it comes to healthcare and the health mm-hmm. of the people who live here. But when you compare us to other developed nations, we actually have the highest maternal mortality rate. And mm-hmm. so when we calculate maternal mortality rates, it's the number of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. And it seems like a big statistic, but just to kind of put this into perspective, about 700 women die in the United States every year related to pregnancy and pregnancy-related causes. And our most recent maternal mortality rate is about 17.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. But that's for everyone in our country. When you separate that by race and ethnicity, that's when we start to see this like staggering disparity that everyone is talking about now. So when we look at maternal mortality rates by race, American Indian and Alaska Native and Black women are two to three times as likely to die from pregnancy-related causes than white women. And this statistic has not changed since you know the early 2000s, since the 90s. At one time, the gap was even bigger. We were saying about probably earlier in my residency, you know, that that disparity was three to four times higher for black women compared to white women. And we don't see that it improves because black women have less comorbid conditions or there's no risk factor to explain it is what I'm trying to say. It's not explained by like a history of certain things being more prevalent in the black community. It's not explained by poverty, education or access to care. And I think what illustrates that really well is that, you know, when the CDC does their maternal mortality statistic overview, they look at social determinants of health or things pertaining to like how a person interacts with their community and the resources they have. And what we found is that Black women with at least a college degree were still five times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes compared to white women who did not graduate high school. And so I think that like that right there hits the nail on the head. There's something going on in our country where it's putting communities of color in vulnerable positions, and it has nothing to do with something inherent in that community. So I'm glad we're talking about this and happy to get more into the data, but that's kind of like the global overview. Yeah, no, I love that, that you laid that out. That was perfect. So something that I have gotten in the past, I posted on this recently a month or so ago, yeah, it was right at the beginning of February for Black Mystery Month. We did a post on it. And I had not very many, but a couple messages from people. Just some of them were just curiosity of like, this seems like it does not exist. Like this does not mm-hmm. make sense. And then other ones were just kind of more hater. kind <laughs> Like just yeah. like, that's not true. This is a false. So I guess what would you say to those types of people? More the haters, not the people who are... Genuinely curious. But what I say back is like, these are numbers. It's nothing like this is data. Like, how can you say that this is like false? So I guess you probably Mm -hmm. get maybe some of the same or have seen some of the same comments or have seen like, like, that's absolutely not to like, there's no way that that's true. Like, why would, you know, I treat everybody the same when I take care of it? Like, oh, so I guess, what would you say back to those people? Yeah, I think, you know, the first thing, and I'll address the people who are really curious and want to know yeah. more. You know, I come from the perspective of a researcher in that you're absolutely right. We are using data to inform 
policy and decision making and protocols in hospitals. And so this data that I'm presenting is our country. And it's collected by the Center for Disease Control, which is a nonpartisan, non-biased entity that just collects information from birth certificates and death certificates and maternal mortality review committees that consist of stakeholders. They actually a lot of times don't include patients. So there are people that are not involved in the case and are tasked with figuring out the cause. And so I think that, you know, it's not information that we have on this issue. And so um, to those who don't believe it, I would say the best thing to do would be inform yourself on how the data is collected, because maybe there is some misinformation out there about how it's collected. And the, the numbers that we have, I think seeing the charts and the actual numbers, but then on the other side, also, you know, behind every statistic is a family that's been devastated. And if yeah see what pull you in. Uh, I would look up um, Charles Johnson, whose wife, Kira, died after a routine cesarean delivery after she bled to death because no one came to reevaluate her um, abdominal pain in the hours after her surgery. Um, Shalon Irving, who was a PhD who worked for the CDC, died of a stroke related to preeclampsia because she went to her doctor multiple times and was told that it was just postpartum stress and she ended up having a stroke and died days after delivery. And she researched this um, and she was also a black woman. And ProPublica, Nina Martin and some of her colleagues wrote something called Lost Mothers, which was in 2017. They basically tried to find all the seven of the 700 women who died or mothers who died in the United States and found their stories. And so it puts a face with each statistic. So I say to the people who don't believe that this is really an issue, how can you deny a woman's face or a picture or her husband telling her story as he's raising now two young boys as a single father? I don't think you can not believe it when you hear those words and see those faces. All right, the sound of that baby crying means it's time for this week's segment of Birth It Up Babies. All right, this is a short and sweet little one that I got from Instagram. She says, I just wanted to drop in and say that I was able to squeeze in a majority of your natural birth class before having my sweet daughter today, and OMG, I am so glad I watched and rewatched your breathing techniques and labor positions. We successfully had an unmedicated birth. I feel like a rock star right now. And I have to say, I used as many of the things I learned from your videos as I could remember. They came in so clutch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I love that one. Short and sweet. Love it. If you want to check out the course that this mom took, she took Birth It Up the Natural Series and you can head over to mommylabornurse.com and click on the natural series. All right, let's get right back into this week's episode. All right, Jasmine. So you are personally a black mom of two. How old are your kids? Now I have a son who's 12 and a daughter who's seven. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel like you were ever treated differently just like with your personal experience being black and being a mom? And like, do you ever feel like you were just treated any differently? Yeah. So I feel blessed to have had very medically low risk pregnancies. So everything for the most part was pretty straightforward. I had a pretty socially high risk situation, just having my son in college and all of the instability, kind of navigating being a single mom. And for both of my pregnancies, I had wonderful obstetricians. So I'm so grateful to both of them because I felt like they did not treat me like what the narrative is right now for black moms in America. But having had one child, you know, in Detroit, uninsured, single black mother, and then having one child as a medical student with insurance, 
married, I felt the stigma and the differences of what care and trying to navigate the system is in those different situations. So gotcha. just, you know, some research has shown that by virtue of just where your zip code is, that can impact an outcome. So mm-hmm. as someone who was on Medicaid insurance, I had a limited amount of providers I could go see. You know, I started with a doctor who was delivering at one of the like very like new cutting edge hospitals. And then because of my insurance, thankfully I was able to stay with my doctor, but I ended up delivering at like one of the state hospitals in Detroit. And although the care with my doctor was wonderful and my labor and delivery nurse is like, I still to this day remember my labor is such a joyous occasion. The stark contrast of experiences just by virtue of having, you know, a state health plan versus mm-hmm. private insurance, delivering in a city that is under-resourced and has decreased access to care compared to delivering yeah. in a suburb that's one of the wealthiest in the state where I was going to medical school, you know, and it was, I'm not a different person in those situations. I'm the same Jasmine, but my care was different and the experience I had was different. And honestly, that kind of lit a fire in me so that when I became a physician, I didn't feel short-sighted in the fact that like, oh, you know, even though I'm able to give this type of care at this hospital, there are so many people just because of where they live, the resources they have, no matter how health literate they are, they are limited in getting like evidence-based excellent care. And so I just want to make sure that I am for my patients, what my doctors were for me, you know, no matter where you are, you should be able to have physicians that partner with you and listen to you and provide the best standard of care, because that's how we correct these inequities. Yeah, totally. No, that's great. And I mean, I can't agree with you more. more. Like, (laughs) I mean, you know where I work. And I think it's just interesting to see. I don't think there's any difference in the care that people receive going through WPP versus Mm -hmm. like the private practice that Mm -hmm. we go with. But yeah, it's just a different, it's just a different class of people. And I think it's great that you kind of took that experience that you had. And now, you know, you're like, I want to work with like, yeah, it sounds great to be at a private practice and probably, you know, you have certain benefits if you're being, if you work at a private, you know, blah, 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 blah. But it seems like you want to serve the people who actually need. Exactly. And you want to serve everyone. I totally agree. You know, the training that I got in residency, I think that one of the strengths of the program was that we weren't isolated to one particular environment. You know, you're on a labor suite where you have someone who just immigrated to the United States laboring next to like a professor laboring next to someone like me who's a student. And so, and we provide the same care for everybody. And I think that we in our bubbles take that for granted sometimes because that is not the experience of everyone. Even speaking to like my friends who I went to college with who are now having children, just the things that their doctors say to them and the way that they feel after interactions, it's almost appalling. And so I just, I think that having these conversations and making sure that we don't just stay within our bubble and we speak out about these things, make sure that like everybody, no matter where they deliver, where they get their prenatal care is going to get that type of care. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that kind of transitioned into this next question about your practice. So Mm -hmm. you're a black mom, but you're also a doctor, Mm -hmm. obviously. So have you ever witnessed anything like concretely in your practice or in your schooling, anything from your colleagues? Mm -hmm. So 
I think that we have to acknowledge that racism in medicine is everywhere. And a lot of it now sometimes is more dangerous because it's more insidious. It's the way that we teach. It's the way that we use our biases to come up with a diagnosis. And so an example of this is we had someone come to our hospital. He was like a device rep for a postpartum hemorrhage management system. So this is a system to help us more accurately measure blood loss after deliveries and hopefully prevent postpartum hemorrhage for everyone, right? And so we were piloting this device on our our labor and delivery unit. And after having it go through, you know, our practice for a few months, the rep came back who is a a retired surgeon who (laughs) saw patients and now works for this company. He said, you know, I was a little bit surprised by your hemorrhage rates. Do you guys have a lot of black moms here? Because black moms bleed more. And this was like a morning conference, a room filled with our labor and delivery nurses, our nurse leadership. You know, I'm a maternal fetal medicine fellow. So I'm not the high man on the totem pole. There were attendings there. There were medical students that heard this. And I remember having this like out of body reaction where I was just like, did no one hear what he just said? Like that was... That's very like, yeah, like it was probably, was it just like nonchalant? Like it was so nonchalant and he just kept going. And so when he finished his talk, I raised my hand and I just remember like my hand was shaking because I was a fellow and there were much more experienced people around me, but I felt like I could not leave that room without saying something. And I said, excuse me, sir there are learners in this room. And I just don't want them to leave this room thinking that what you said was correct. Black moms do not bleed more. There is nothing about Black people's blood that makes them bleed more. It is because there is racism. It is because they are ignored. It is because they aren't treated in the timely fashion. It has nothing to do with their blood not clotting as much. And so I just want to make sure that, you know, no one leaves this room thinking that what you just said is true. And he just stared at me. I was going to ask, what did he do? (laughs) He just stared at me and like kept going. And I remember like my face was like hot. And afterwards, you know, a lot of people texted me and they were like, I'm so glad you said something. And these were people who were more senior than me. And it was after reflecting on that, it was very emotional because I feel like sometimes I feel like as the black person in the department, as the only black MFM fellow, like I'm always the one bringing up these issues on race and medicine. And it's really hard for people to confront other people about race. And I think that that was a prime example. And it also, again, just let me know, like, I need to continue to speak. We all need to speak up because if those medical students have left there and then went to be physicians and thought that like black women were coagulopathic. I don't know how that would change treatment. Like maybe they would let black women have higher blood you loss nev- because yeah, it, you, never know. you don't know, you don't yeah. know. And you know, that is similar to this study that they did in the university of Virginia, where they actually pulled nursing students and medical students on these like true or false statements. And some of them were actually true. And some were just false and like kind of racist statements about difference between blacks and whites. So like, for example, black people have thicker skin. And so they don't perceive pain, their pain perception, like they have a higher pain tolerance. And people actually said that they thought that was true or that they clotted faster, those types of things that would affect how they assess a patient and whether or not they think they're in pain. And we actually did a study on our postpartum unit after routine cesarean delivery. And what we found is that black women reported more severe pain scores by the staff that came in and assessed their pain. However, they received less assessments by nurses and they received less pain medication compared to white women who did not have as highly reported pain scores. And so again, I don't think 
the people in our units are racist. I don't think they ignore black women and don't assess their pain intentionally. But I think we do need to take a step back and think about like, what have we been taught? What has been like perpetuated through medicine that is just reinforcing some of these like racist structures and beliefs that's impacting how black patients are getting care and patients of color in general. And so it's uncomfortable, but I'm so glad I raised my hand and confronted that. I am white too. Man. And I hope that I inspired other people to do the same when I'm not the only black person in the yeah. room or when yeah. there isn't a person of color in the room, just because we're not going to change mindsets and views until we start talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a perfect example. And I mean, gosh, it's so easy to do. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just so I'm sure it's hard for people to speak up. But it's also just so easy to just say, Hey, did you mean what you just said? Or like, actually, (laughs) that's not true. You know, it's like just a simple thing that you can say that just I mean, you don't know that raising of your hand could have made such a difference in every single person in that room, just in the way that the next person that they take care of. It's like, Oh, yeah, Jasmine said this, like, Mm -hmm. or if you hadn't raised your hand, maybe right. it's not something that they're thinking about while they're taking care of their patients. That guy in the meeting said that black moms yeah. don't clot as much, but it's like, it's just <laughs> in the back of their head. So that's going to yeah, their practice. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. No, I think that's great. I think that's a great example. Well, I want to talk about actionable steps. Okay. Mm-hmm. And while we're still talking about providers and actual stuff that you've taken. Let's talk about that first. So obviously speaking up and having conversations Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. one, but are there any other actionable steps that we as providers can take to address this issue? Yeah. Well, I think looking at our own biases. So we all have implicit biases. And so we need to educate ourselves on what they are so that when we do see them kind of playing themselves out, we're able to take a step back. Exactly like you said, yeah. you know, reflecting and saying, well, what did you mean by that statement? Can you support that with data? Just making sure that the things that we're practicing are evidence-based. So yeah. a great example right now that everyone is starting to look at. So at our society for maternal fetal medicine meeting, one of the presenters looked back at a study where basically ACOG or the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists were recommending different thresholds for hemoglobin cutoffs for treatment of anemia in black versus white patients. And so it actually really isn't rooted in really good data. But black patients, basically, they were saying, you know, wait till they're more anemic to treat them because there was this like historical thought that like black patients at baseline have lower hemoglobins, which we've now debunked that. And that helps to make sure that all patients are treated for their anemia appropriately. So looking at like race-based algorithms in medicine, there's so many, and then they're starting to talk about them more. So like the VBAC calculator, when we're talking about counseling people for vaginal birth Mm. after cesarean, there is a race and ethnicity category in that. And now we're looking, well, okay, how does race really play into a VBAC calculator? Like we know that like pelvimetry is not different amongst Mm -hmm. races. Race is the social construct. So we need to stop penalizing people of color when we're we're counseling them on whether or not they'll have a successful vaginal birth after cesarean. Other things, you know, hospitals are starting to do bias training, but I think that like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of red tape with all of that. And I think waiting for hospitals to like roll out these big trainings, I don't think we need to do that. We need to like take it upon ourselves and check out things like out of Greensboro, there's the Race Equity Institute that has this awesome training that's not necessarily medically based, but it just gives you a good like overview of like 
race in America and like yeah. how race started and how race intersects with classism and how it trickles yeah. down into all these different domains. When you do have quality metrics at work for those that are practicing in the clinical field, make sure they are tracking outcomes by race and ethnicity. So where we trained and where you work, Liesl, you guys have one of the best or one of the lowest cesarean rates. Like it's so impressive. And so you want to make sure that like we're disaggregating that data by race. So if we have the lowest cesarean rate in the country, let's make sure that like the people who are getting a cesarean aren't just black or Hispanic or, you know, people Mm -hmm. of color, because then that's an inequity. And we need to go back and look at like what is going on in those labor courses that is kind of putting patients disproportionately on the C-section path. And then, you know, we all are really good at listening to our patients, but just, you know, taking a step back and not taking offense when a patient speaks up and says they're not feeling listened to or they voiced their concerns and they didn't feel like their provider was really partnering with them. I think we need to like bring some humility to the table as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's obvious, (laughs) right? I mean, I feel like I talk, you know, me and my husband talk about that in marriage counseling that we need to, you know, not take stuff personally as much if like somebody brings up this. And yeah, that's how we should be at our bedside. So (laughs) I totally agree. Well, let's talk about, are there any actionable steps that moms can take, Black moms, Mm -hmm. if anybody's listening? I know advocacy is a really good one, like moms learning about advocacy and how to advocate for themselves. But you have anything that, you know, it's obviously we play a big role in this as providers, but I'm sure there are a lot of things that you as a mom can do too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I love giving people action items, but I always preface this, like for the black moms listening out there, there is nothing wrong with you. There right. is nothing wrong with right. black women that explains these statistics. And so we can't be responsible for fixing this problem solely. But I think that until we have this like big mass change that we're looking for, yeah. definitely making sure that our moms feel empowered to speak up. We spend so much money on healthcare in this country, but I feel like our patients really feel disempowered to like speak up when they don't feel listened to by their providers. And as much of a hassle as it is to switch a doctor and transfer records, it is okay to switch doctors. It is okay to switch obstetricians in the middle of your pregnancy. If you don't feel like it's a good fit, you know, for Black women, that is a life or death decision yeah. who you've chosen to partner with for your prenatal care and delivery. And we, I feel very doomsday by saying that, but there are so many stories and narratives that started with, she said something and it was brushed off. She said something, yeah. she went to the yeah. doctor and she was sent home. And so you just really want to have someone that you trust taking care of you. And the New York Times put out an article towards the end of last year where they had some really good conversation starters for women of color when they wanted to talk to their prenatal providers oh. about like everything happening because Black women are afraid to have babies right now. And so it was things like, you know, going to your appointment and saying, I read in the media that Black women don't have their pain taken as seriously as women of other races. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me like what your hospital is doing to address this? Or how do you feel about this? And I think that like having these conversations, you don't have to have the perfect answer as a physician, but as someone who's had a baby before, I really value when someone acknowledges my fears and concerns and and says, Hey, hey, I'm here for you. And we're going to get the best outcome we possibly can. As a high-risk pregnancy doctor, 
I always tell my patients, like, know your history. Know if you have a high-risk pregnancy or a condition that would put you in a high-risk pregnancy, because those are the things that going into a pregnancy, you want to make sure that you've optimized your health because that is what's going to create, you know, the most smooth prenatal course and delivery that you can. I love telling people to partner with doulas. So there are doulas, there's Triangle Doulas of Color, which is an organization started by Black women for the Black community here. But then there's Sister Song, there's national networks that have kind of directories of doulas. Some of them are for fees, some are for a price, but it's good to just have another person advocate with you. And then also bringing people to appointments. So in the pandemic, And these are things that everybody can do in the pandemic. You know, sometimes depending on where you go for care, there may be visitor restrictions, but Mm -hmm. especially in my field where we talk about a lot of like heavy, complicated things, I like to pause and say, is there someone you want to call? Is there someone you want to put on FaceTime Mm -hmm. that couldn't be here? Because I think that, you know, some of the shock of getting a lot of information, you have to like hear it a couple of times and have someone with you to like, remember the things you forgot. And so those would be my big ones that I would tell patients to do. Love it. Love it. Well, this is a great... I've been taking notes, Jasmine. (laughs) Because we're actually... I'm sure you're familiar with the situation that happened with Serena Williams. I don't know how many years ago. 2017, I think it was. She had her daughter. And she's super cute. I'm following her on Instagram. She's so Instagram. adorable. She just oh shared like they're both in pink, little pink bathing suits. She's oh shared. my gosh. I saw that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, cute. so cute. And I was like, I need to find this for me and Isabel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, she's a perfect example. And we're sharing a quote today by her for our post today on for Black Maternal Health Week. Mm. And I just wrote down these, the sister song and the triangle doula. We'll definitely share those as well. Cause that's one of the actionable steps that we say too, is like, yeah, doulas, like they can make a huge, huge difference regardless of if you're a person of color or not, they can make a huge difference in just your whole birth experience. So we're very pro doula. So yeah, we'll definitely share those as well. Jasmine, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on with me. Can you tell us, I know you said it in the intro and I said it in my own intro, (laughs) um, but can you just remind people if they want to follow you on Instagram or follow you in the internet where they can find you? Yeah. So I'm most active on Instagram at Mrs. Mommy MD. And I also have a blog where I'm actually for Black Maternal Health Week trying to put out more content this week pertaining to these issues. So please check it out. The website is www.mrsmommyandy.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And it's good to catch up. I haven't talked to you. Well, we talked, but this is spoiler alert. We're (laughs) re-recording some stuff because Jasmine, we had some technical issues. So I just (laughs) talked to Jasmine like a month ago, but before that, I hadn't talked to you. I know. It was nice to to get the double dose. Nice to catch up. (laughs) Yes. All right, Jasmine. Well, (laughs) it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and letting me be a part of your motherhood journey. It is truly an honor. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I love hearing what you guys think of the podcast. So if you're liking what you hear or you have a suggestion, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and leave me a review wherever you're listening to help more mamas just like you find the show. What do you think? Are you starting to feel a little more confident about your pregnancy and birth? Well, if you want more, be sure to head on over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast 
for today's show notes and a library of episodes so you can keep getting educated before your upcoming birth. And while you're over there, be sure to check out the blog and learn about our online birth classes. Find it all and more over at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. See you next week. Same time, same place.